Creativity is an exclusive series on Sci-Fi Talk Plus that examines a creative process which has always fascinated me. Here is a preview episode on authors, on how they work, and find their inspiration. And this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. This is chapter one of creativity as we look at authors in this particular edition. From 1994, I sat down on a rainy day in New York City to speak to Robert Jordan, whose Wheel of Time series is now on Prime Video. Now, I do apologize. This was recorded on an old cassette tape, so it's not exactly the quality that I would like. However, his thoughts do come through, and unfortunately, since he is no longer with us, this is the only audio I have with this amazing author. He talked about how he actually works. I uh, I could, so my editor says, spend five or six or ten years writing one book, trying to polish it and make the words flow in a, in a more pleasing way, more pleasing to me. In a way, I come from an oral tradition, you see. My father was a raconteur. My uh, my grandfather, my uncles, my great-uncles, all of them storytellers, tale spinners. Uh, so I have a tendency to hear what I write, uh, both as a tale and as music, in a way, because a good storyteller gives his rendition a musical quality. So I, I keep wanting to work on the composition, and I have to make myself stop. Say, all right, you, you, you've done as much as you can practically. You, you need to move on to the next thing here. So it, and since I want each composition, if you will, each book, to be better than what I've done before, it does become more difficult. How do you, how do you work when you write a book? Do you have a regimen that you go through? <laughs> yes, I... Um, for working hours, I start off with at least six to eight hours a day, five days a week, and that begins to expand almost immediately. For the last two or three months of a book, I will be working 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week, and I may take a day or two in there somewhere that I, uh, or maybe even three days that I don't write. But I generally feel antsy at that point about not writing. I'm, I'm wasting time. I've got to get back to it. I've got to get back to it. There's more sci-fi talk, so stay tuned. So where do authors get their inspiration? In his case, he liked to use history as his guide. As uh, my study of history... And uh, of what I, I suppose I call now social anthropology, although it wasn't called that. Uh, I uh, and when I was five, I got I was reading anything I could get my hands on, uh, either books supplied by my older brother or from my parents' shelves. And one of the books that I pulled down was a uh, a travel book about China, written in the 1880s, I think it was. Uh, it was from a time when there was, of course, no television, no radio. Uh, photography was very difficult. Uh, so this book, these books, the travel books, were in effect travel logs in print with elaborate drawings of people and buildings and uh, clothing 
uh, uh, elaborate descriptions of the culture, of every level of the culture, of uh, how people did this and how they did that and what they believed and what they thought. And it was, in effect, uh, social anthropology. And it fascinated me then and has ever since. So that helped in designing cultures. Uh, you, you spoke, for instance, about the people, uh, about some of the clans being yeah. violent. Well, the, cl uh, the clan structure belongs to the people called the Aiel. Right, yeah. And the Aiel in particular are built largely from um, certain facets of uh, Apaches in, here in North America, uh, Zulus in Africa, some bits from the Bedouins, and uh, some from the Mongols. And onto that I grafted uh, pieces of my own, constructs of my own. Uh, so uh, the, yes, they're a, they're a violent people, but uh, their history uh, is such as to have uh, produced either a violent people or a dead people. Sometimes a location will trigger something for you. And that was the case for Logan's Run co-author William F. Nolan, as he visited a haunted house, and that led him to write a story. Well, yeah, my wife and I visited the Winchester House, which was uh, built many years ago by hmm. Sarah Winchester. Uh, she was the uh, wife of the man who invented the Winchester rifle, and she felt very guilty about that all the, the the men and women and children have been killed over the years with Winchester rifles. So she, when she moved uh, into Winchester House, it was a small farm, and she said that she's going to keep adding and building to it in reparation for all of the all of the harm her husband's uh, rifle caused. And uh, she felt, felt that she was being haunted by the ghost of all the people that had died under the under the Winchester rifle. So uh, I, I visited Winchester House. It, it's up in San Jose, California, with my wife. And and I asked the, the caretaker there, I said, I, I, I'm sure there have been a lot of ghost stories written about this place. And she said, nope, not a single one. I said, you're kidding. I said, well, let out write one. And so I there went out and wrote the novella, yeah. Oh, that's great. So Mr. Kincaid heads up there. Yes, yes. He's one of the characters. It's told by him in part, but it's also told by victims of the house the, the, oh, who cool. die in the house. I, I switched the narrative around. I don't. I, the other two are uh, t uh, totally... Narrated by him in first person. With the Winchester Horror, I, I move different narrat narrators around. I, he narrates part of it, and he is the central core of it, but he isn't the only one that tells the story. The, the, the story is also told from other perspectives. Kind of a challenge as a writer to be able to pull something like that off, but I think it worked. What kind of led you in that direction? What was the idea behind that? Oh, I, I just I got tired of doing the same thing. I, I every every time I write something, I try to stretch the envelope and go in a slightly different direction. And I thought it would be fun to ch to switch narrators in here, which is uh, seldom done in in stories, and uh, and tell it from different perspectives. It, it was just an idea I had. Now, when you plan this, <laughs> you want you kind of want to stick to a theme. And my original theme was how authors work and what their day is like. However, I came across two pieces of audio that were just too good to leave alone. And first, it's from award-winning author George R.R. R. Martin, as he talked about evil to me back in 1996 when the original Game of Thrones book was published. When uh, people 
approach me and tell me that they like the Game of Thrones, uh, since I do have a cast of, uh, I believe seven or eight, uh, mm-hmm. two point characters that I switch between, I, I like to ask, uh, people who their favorites were, and I get quite a range of responses, which, uh, I take as encouragement. That means, uh, because I think my goal here is to, is to paint these people realistically and in shades of gray, not to do heroes and villains per se, but to show that everybody has strengths and weaknesses. Everybody, even the best and most noblest of people have, have, um, flaws, and even the most vile, uh, villain is capable of, uh, of certain loves and loyalties. And the fact that everybody can identify with different characters and I get a broad range of responses, uh, indicates to me that I'm succeeding to an extent, which I'm pleased with. Well, I don't think evil characters per se, uh, as they're sometimes depicted in films, really, uh, really exist. I mean, I don't think even Adolf Hitler got up in the morning and said, ooh, I'm evil. Um, you know, he thought he was the hero of the story, uh, deeply deluded as he was. We all think we're the heroes of the story. And the villain is, is the hero of the other side, as uh, someone said once. And I think there's an element of truth to that. So when I get inside a character's head, I try to understand what uh, what motivates him. What, what, does he, uh, what does he want? Um, characters who perform evil solely for the sake of evil uh, exist only in uh, you know the worst sort of comic book. But. I do correct that. He also spoke to me and Ernest Lilly, who is my co-host for life, as I like to say. Sci-Fi Talk returns in a moment. New York Times bestseller Terry Goodkind talked to me at the New York Renaissance Festival about the characters and their motivations. Now, the funny thing is you're going to hear sounds of the Renaissance Fair in the background, but I think it only adds to a fantasy interview. Here it is. Um, Darkenrall is a person who has very specific ideas about what he wants to do with the world, and he thinks he's doing something good for the world. He thinks he knows better than other people. And the things that he does to accomplish those tasks, he doesn't see as evil. He sees as um, necessary for a greater good. But they're perceived as evil by the ones that he's killing. They have a different view of good and evil. He's not a villain in that he's going around doing things because he hates people or wants to destroy people. He hates opposition to his cause and will destroy whatever opposition is in front of him. I'd say he's a person who has uh, integrity in his own mind. Well, he's kind of blind to his own cause and doesn't really see anything else but that. Absolutely, absolutely. That's um, the only thing to him. That's probably what makes him dangerous, though, don't you think? Yes, that's what makes anybody dangerous, is when they think they're doing right and they don't see any other side to it. What part of your mind did he come from, so to speak? Dark and Roll, uh, anybody that's, that's really evil comes from just sort of letting your imagination run loose. It's taking the, the fences down and taking the restrictions down and what would you do if sort of scenario. And just letting your yourself imagine what people can do. You know, you, you see a lot of things around you from... You, know, you watch the news and you see all these incredibly horrible things happening and you wonder, how can human beings go around doing the seemingly evil things that they do you know you see bodies by the thousands floating down a river how can anyone do that well they don't do it because they're saying gee i'm really evil i want to go out and just kill a whole bunch of people they think that they're doing something for a greater good for a higher cause and they see killing and destruction and torture as a good thing 
they're creating uh, a service to mankind by destroying whoever it is that they view as evil. So these people that are going around doing these things aren't seeing themselves as villains that are doing horrible things. And I think that's, in creating a villain, that's what I think about is they're not necessarily horrid people and what is a horrid person like. It's what can human beings do when they're their own sense of restraint is unleashed by what they see as, as necessary. When you wrote the book, what kind of, uh, did you have a routine of it, or did it just sort of come in spurts, or how did you work to write this? Well, I write 12 or 14 hours a day, seven days a week, because I just absolutely love to write so much that I can't stop. And my wife gets a little bit annoyed because I don't want to turn off the computer and go to sleep. I like to just sit there and keep going. You know, I want to know what's going to happen next. I have a basic outline that I work from. The story of the book sticks to that outline, but of course, you know, an outline is 10 or 15 pages of the beginning, the middle, the end, and then many of the major events along the way. But when you're writing, your subconscious is also always at work because all the things you've ever seen, heard, or done are packed into your back of your head and you may not consciously be aware of them but they all come out when you're writing and they're giving input to what's going on and at times it can seem like the story's being taken over by the characters it's actually your, your own head doing this but it's a exhilarating feeling to be doing it it feels like the characters are coming up with these things on their own well actually it's my own mind doing it but it's a, it's an interesting feeling while it's happening and so you're writing along and Many things happen that you don't expect to happen. Sometimes you just have to know what's... You, I'm, I'm a bystander wanting to know what's going to go on next. And so I want to keep writing. I don't want to stop because I want to know what's going to happen. And some of the characters that pop up I hadn't been planning on. They just popped up by themselves. And it was really fun to see where they would go and what they would do. But at the same time, they all fit within the framework of the plot. Like, like characters... If you create them well enough, they'll live their own lives, and they'll sort of tell you which way the book goes, in a sense. Absolutely. That's what happened with me, is in the beginning, as I came to learn the characters, they began dictating to me what they would do. There were places where I had planned for characters to do one thing, and when I got there, they started doing something completely different, and I'm going, why are they doing this other thing? And after I'd finished the scene, I would look at it and I would then realize, well, it was because that character wouldn't have done the way I originally planned, because in the beginning I didn't know them well enough. And as they evolved through the book and I came to know them, they began exerting their own personalities so that they'd stay true to themselves. One of the things that I was always concerned about when I was writing is it irritates me when I read books and people are so cardboard and wooden and stereotypes. I, in, the world is full of interesting people, and I like to people the book with interesting people. I like to have them have personalities of their own. They seem a lot more real to me when they are unique, when they when they do things their own way, rather than typical villain and, and ancillary characters and those kind of people that you see so often. I just, I don't like to do things that way. I like to have unique characters that have uh, lives of their own and have reasons of their own behind what they do. You know, Dark and Rawl, besides believing in what he does, he has things that shaped him to make him that way. Anybody that does horrendous things in their life 
th there's more to it than just them coming on stage and doing those things. There was more to their life before that. So I, I really enjoy developing the characters. And when I, when I write, I don't write from a plot standpoint that it just it goes from A to B to C, etc. I write from the emotional standpoint of the characters, what's important to the people that are that are there. Because these people are, that I write about are my friends. I live with them more than I live with anybody else. You know, I'm there when I'm awake and when I'm asleep. I dream about them at night. When I'm going to sleep, I'm thinking about them. When I wake up, I'm thinking about them. When I'm driving somewhere, I'm thinking about them. So they're people that I live with constantly, and they mean a great deal to me. And I want them to be real to the reader. And when I write, I write about the emotions of these people and what is going on in their lives that makes them need to do what they're doing. What's important to them to preserve in their world? What's, what's significant in their lives? And what would make them do something that ordinarily they may not do? What would drive them to uh, rise above something, to touch a, no a more noble intent in their life? Screenwriter and now author David Kep talked about how a real-life incident and inspiration led him to write his audio drama, Yard Work, which is now available on Audible, by the way. Like most stories, you, you or I find a little scrap of something in my, in my life, and it gets me thinking. And uh, this, uh, this house I live in in Amagansett, New York, which is out on the uh, far end of Long Island, um, we abut this uh, uh, agricultural preserve, and there, uh, there's a lot of trees, and you know they they really were infested by these invasive mm -hmm. vines that had blown up the East Coast on Hurricane Sandy seven or eight years ago, uh -huh. uh, which happens in my story. And mm -hmm. um, so I got they were taking down trees. You know, after a couple of years, they would choke the life out of a tree, and they were coming after our trees and trying to murder them. And, oh, wow. um, so I said, well, this, this cannot stand. I gotta, I gotta handle this myself. So I, you know, I went out there in my, uh, you know, with my gloves and, and, and a big weed chopper and I started pulling them down <laughs> and pulling them out of the trees. And I got really obsessive about it the way the character does in my story. And yeah. they were nasty. You know, they got bigger and bigger as, as I got further in and, these vine, these these thorns on the vines were just ripping the shit out of my arms and legs. And it took me days to realize you got to put on a pair of pants. And I just started thinking, you know, my mind started wandering, and I thought these, these are weird. What if they're really weird? What if one of these times I pull it out of this tree and there's a mouth at the end of it? And I had this sense of myself in a pitched battle mm -hmm. with nature. And you know, so then that line of thinking naturally led me to a story about somebody who's doing just that and making it bigger about his, his fight with nature and his beefs against nature and who better to have those kind of thoughts than an 88 year old man. Yes. <laughs> and so as I was writing the story, because when I started, I started it as prose and naturally my thinking often goes to movies, but you know, writing a movie about an 88 year old man, that's a horror story and, and you know, isn't, it's going to be tough to get that made. And I thought, well, why worry about that kind of thing? Why not write the story and, and then see what medium is right for it. Mm -hmm. I finished it and it, it just sort of naturally seemed to lend itself to uh, being an audible original because I was enjoying those, the, their, their stuff so much on, uh, on my walks and hikes and jogging and exercise bike and stuff. You know, they, they just have great 
great stuff. And it, it's so wide ranging because it's not pinned down by, well, we had to get somebody to give us $50 million to make this. So it's got to be a certain kind of genre. Um, yeah. it, it can be anything. The main character, the judge, I mean, I totally related to, I'm not 88, but I totally understood where he is in his life. You know, he's getting his house ready where he's currently living with his wife when the story begins so that he figures, hey, I'm going to go first because she's younger. And of course, things reverse and he ends up going to uh, his house. And by the way, any mention of Green Bay in the story always gets my attention because I'm a big Packer fan. So I enjoyed that. Oh, are you? Oh, well, I grew up in Wisconsin. So, uh, oh, there you go. <laughs> me too. Yeah, yeah. How did he kind of come together? I mean, his little nuances and things. And do you sketch him out first before you start writing for him? In my head, yes. Yeah. And, you know, I think about, there's a lot of my dad in there. You know, I'm, I'm from, I grew up on a lake, a lake in a small town in Wisconsin, uh, you know, which is where the story is set. And mm. my dad uh, died when he was 84, but he, um, uh, you know, in his last several years, he was a, one of those guys who insisted on doing everything himself, including, you know, climbing up on a 20 foot ladder to clean out the gutters when he's 82 years old. And you're like, dad, please. Um, and I just, I found, I, as I've gotten older, I'm now 57, you know, and it, you start to maybe lose a little bit of the ability to do things you used to do. Um, mm-hmm. Not in a serious way at 57, but you're right. not as fast as you used to be. You're not this, you're not that. And I, but I understand it. I understand the desire to keep doing the things that you've always done, even though you know you shouldn't or mm-hmm. you can't. And not wanting to give that fight up early. Um, and so I, you know, as I, I found that a really empathetic character. And also just life's abrupt changes of plans, you know. That, sure. As you said, he always figured he would go first. Mm-hmm. And in fact, pre- prepared their whole life for that. And then it didn't happen that way. Um, yep. And he feels betrayed by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand that, that feeling of being angry at nature or angry with life. Well, for me, growing up reading Ray Bradbury, I always liked good descriptions. And, and boy, you've got a there's a couple of scenes in here where this, I won't give anything away, but the scene in the bathroom and then finally <laughs> yeah, the, the final confrontation. I mean, I was almost, I, I, your first reaction is, Oh, that's gotta hurt. You know, it's really yeah, some good stuff yeah. in there. Well, I, I love those. I can't help it. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I like gross stuff. Um, <laughs> and there, the scene in the bathroom is, is, is tough. Uh, mm-hmm. um, because, well, there's a sentence in it that that, that starts that sequence, which is one of my favorite sentences, which is, uh, like many upsetting things, he noticed it for the first time in the shower. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Which happens (laughs) to all of us. Um, But uh, when you get into, when you get an idea for one of those scenes, a scene where something, you know, grotesque or upsetting or graphic happens, some of us take a perverse delight in really describing it fully. And, and, and stretching it out. Um, it's a similar thing with suspense. When you, once you set the suspense hook, your job as a, as a writer is to, is to drag it out as long as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what makes it enjoyable. Um, oh yeah. And I think it's the same with some, some, some gross stuff. 
uh, once you once you get into it, you should really fully describe it. And that is the first chapter for Sci-Fi Talk Creativity on Authors. Sci-Fi Talk Plus is a great podcasting gift, not only for yourself, but also for friends and family. There's over 900 episodes that are commercial-free, uncut, and even special programs. Best part about it, it's free. Click on the link in the show notes for free lifetime access. This is Tony Talato.